Welcome to episode 38 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. And I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the founders of InfoPoems. And John Hickner here, family physician and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Family Practice. So our goal on this podcast is to highlight practice-changing research, what we call poems for patient-oriented evidence that matters. If you want to get all of the poems, about 25 a month, subscribe to Essential Evidence, where you get all of them, about one a day, and also a great mobile primary care reference. Check it out at www.essentialevidenceplus.com. It's only 89 bucks a year, and you can be guaranteed of keeping up with all the most important primary care research. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. The last couple of episodes, we've talked about the first 16 of the top 20 poems of 2019. Today, we're going to cover the remaining four. Topics include bleeding risk with different DOACs, whether higher doses of ibuprofen are better than lower doses, a comparison of Shingrix with Zostavax, and whether exercise really prevents falls. Plus, a quick update on the COVID-19 epidemic, which has some research starting to come out now. John, why don't you take us, uh, get us started? Will do. The question answered in this study is, which oral anticoagulants have the highest risk of causing upper GI bleeding? And does co-therapy with a PPI lower that risk? This study was published by Ray and colleagues in JAMA in 2018, volume 320. The design was a cohort study. The investigators analyzed the U.S. Medicare beneficiary files of patients age 30 and older who initiated oral anticoagulation treatment with either apixaban, that's Eliquis, dabigatran, Pradaxa, rivaroxaban, Xarelto, or warfarin, and with or without a PPI. The primary outcome of interest was hospitalization for upper GI bleeding that was potentially preventable by PPI co-therapy. Approximately 1.6 million patients had 1.7 million new episodes of oral anticoagulation treatment from 2011 through 2015. The mean age of the patients was about 76, and the indication in most cases was atrial fibrillation for 75% of them. In patients receiving anticoagulant treatment without PPI co-therapy, Eliquis was the winner, and Rivaroxaban or Xarelto was the loser. With about 0.73 serious GI bleeds requiring hospitalization per 100 patients per year for Eliquis versus 1.4 per 100 patients per year for Xarelto, which is a number needed to harm, of 140 per year, and the other two anticoagulants were intermediate between those. Now, for patients receiving the anticoagulant treatment with PPI co-therapy, the adjusted incidence of severe upper GI bleeding was nearly cut in half uh, with the number needed to treat of 256, Eliquis still being the best performer. Now, remember, this is a cohort study, so there were many fancy adjustments to reduce bias. One can't be as confident of the results compared to randomized trial, but this does represent real-world experience. So the bottom line is that among patients using oral anticoagulants, the risk of hospitalization for upper GI bleeding is highest with rivaroxaban and lowest with apixaban. Cotherapy with a proton pump inhibitor reduces the risk by about 40%. Mark, any thoughts? 
Yeah, this was, I, I like this study a lot. I mean, you're right. Whenever you have a retrospective cohort study, you have to look carefully. Did they adjust for what they could? Because they're using billing administrative type data, they can't adjust for things that aren't in that database. And so there's always the chance that patients who are selected for particular anticoagulants because of their bleeding risk. But overall, the, the other thing you look for is, is it consistent with uh, RCT data? And in the randomized trials, and when there have been sort of indirect and direct comparisons, uh, Pixaban does tend to have a lower bleeding risk in those kinds of studies as well. So it's consistent with that, and I think it's kind of believable. And I think it's good information that the PPI does help. It's not sure we need to put everyone on that, but certainly a patient who might be at increased bleeding risk because of their has blood score, you might want to consider that and, and hopefully mitigate that risk to some extent. Well, I've got the next uh, one, and this is a very simple study. Uh, it, the title is Equivalent Pain Relief with Different Doses of Ibuprofen. Uh, in patients, uh, I'm sorry, the title of the actual study is Comparison of Oral Ibuprofen at Three Single-Dose Regimens for Treating Acute Pain in the ED, a Randomized Trial. Kind of says it all. They took 225 adults coming into a single ED with some kind of an acute painful condition, mostly musculoskeletal. The average pain score was 6 to 7 on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the worst pain. And they were randomized to a single dose of ibuprofen, 400, 600, or 800 milligrams. After 60 minutes, they asked them their pain score again. It had dropped almost exactly the same amount in all three groups, down to about 4.4 to 4.5. The study was powered to find a clinically significant difference if one existed, but there was no difference. Uh, there have been other studies finding similar things. Uh, same has been shown for chronic treatment of osteoarthritis as well, the so-called anti-inflammatory dose. A theoretical thing doesn't probably um, matter, at least based on the studies that we've seen to date. And there was even another study showing equivalence between 200 and 400 milligram doses. Uh, John, any comments? Yes, I have a hard time convincing patients that this is true, even though this is one of several studies showing this to be the case. So many patients want their prescription for 600 or 800 milligram ibuprofen, although I try to talk them out of it and I refer to these studies. Yeah, it's it's hard for me to believe it. I mean, I've spent, you know, my whole career telling, you know, giving, oh, no, you need the 500 milligrams of naproxen and, you know, probably not. And uh, I think we're finding that increasingly I may... I take uh, naproxen for my osteoarthritis. I may do a little uh, unblinded uh, N of one trial and see if I notice any difference over time. So I think it's uh, your turn again, John. You've got, um, we're going to hear from Henry eventually. He's waiting patiently in the corner. We made him sit in the corner while we talk. And, uh, but John is going to talk about zoster vaccines. This is probably old news to most of you. And the question is, New zoster vaccine prevents more cases but causes more sore arms. The question is, which herpes zoster vaccine is more effective? And that is, of course, Zostavax versus Shingrits. So the researchers assembled 27 studies that had more than 2 million patients, mostly randomized trials that compared the effects of these herpes zoster vaccinations. And they used a network meta-analysis, a fancy way to allow them to compare the two forms of vaccine against each other, even though they weren't directly compared. Uh, interestingly, with this method of analysis, the old vaccine, the Zostavax, did not decrease the likelihood of confirmed herpes zoster any more than placebo. And recall that the claims were that it reduced the incidence by about 50%. 
in those individual trials. At any rate, the new vaccine is much more effective with a vaccine efficacy of 85% versus the live vaccine and 94% versus the placebo. However, it's almost twice as likely than the older vaccine to cause injection site reactions and systemic reactions as well. Uh, I had a pretty sore arm myself when I took this vaccine. My wife uh, had systemic symptoms and didn't feel well, but I, I guess in the end, uh, it, it's a good vaccine, so uh, it's it's recommended, but let your patients know that they are likely to feel it. Yeah, I think, um, you know, as we have vaccines with more and more valences, you know, more and more uh, antigen targets, you know, you got the nine valent HPV vaccine now. If you look at all those reports, it's pretty consistent. The, the, the better the vaccine, the stronger, if you will, the vaccine, the more the injection site reaction is and, and the likelihood of some of these mild temporary systemic reactions. But yeah, I'm all in for that one. Uh, my wife and I both had sore arms uh, earlier this year, but um, it is far more effective. It makes you, I mean, it was basically, the old one was a placebo and it was like a saline injection. It just, I mean, it did almost nothing. And uh, that was why I'd been kind of hesitating to get it because I, I looked at the old studies and, you know, Henry, we were talking earlier and Henry pointed out that, you know, maybe this was some selective publication bias on the part of the older vaccine manufacturer to get it approved being so bad in these, you know, other trials that, um, you know, maybe they suppress some of, some of the research that wouldn't happen though. Um, <laughs> Henry, it's your, finally, it's finally been waiting so patiently. Finally, it's your turn. Tell us about exercise and falls. I will. But before I do that, John, you pointed out a 50% reduction in the um, risk of developing um, shingles with the old vaccine. That was in one study and it went from 1% per year in the control group to a half percent in the active treatment group. So hardly anything, yeah, hardly anything to brag about. All right. So this, this study asks the question, in older patients, do exercise classes or a prescribed exercise regimen decrease the risk of falls, injuries, or more serious outcomes? This was published in JAMA Internal Medicine this past March. This, uh, the, these investigators did a really good job in terms of doing a, a meta-analysis. They looked at multiple databases. They looked at clinical trials registries. And they, their goal was to try to identify randomized long-term studies that looked at these different kinds of exercise programs on important outcomes. The patients had to be 59 years of age of old or older. So it's a very heterogeneous group if you think about the normal aging group. They identified 46 studies, about um, half of them had evaluated some multi-component training, so strength, balance, aerobics, um, but virtually all of them included some form of strength training. Uh, the most common approach was a supervised 50 minutes three times a week. And what they found was that the exercise significantly decreased the risk of falls and injuries, but not necessarily multiple falls or hospitalizations or mortality. So the overall quality of the research was mediocre, and there was some concerns about publication bias that they found. So, you know, in the past few years, we've seen lots of individual studies that pretty 
pretty much said the same thing that we can reduce falls, but not necessarily injuries. It's not until they pooled the data that we were able to see a decrease in these injuries. So that kind of illustrates to me the power of pooling data and some of the limitations on these smaller individual studies. So bottom line, regular moderate intensity exercise two to three times per week can decrease the number of falls and injuries, but maybe not hospitalizations and mortality. John. Yes, uh, this abstracts gives me an opportunity for a brief uh, uh, advertisement. Uh, we are giving our essential evidence courses in Illinois in March, one in Chicago and one in Peoria. And I will be doing a chapter on geriatrics that includes this abstract. But please contact the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians and sign up for one of our courses. I think you'll really enjoy it. Thanks for the plug, John. Little log rolling never hurt anybody. Um, so we're going to talk next about the uh, novel coronavirus, which um, we now, uh, COVID-19 is the name, coronavirus disease 2019, I think is where that comes from. So COVID-19. And this was a report uh, published in the New England Journal uh, just about a week, week and a half ago. Uh, it came out January 29th, so uh, pushing two weeks now. Um, and it was on the first 425 cases in Wuhan, China. And it was written by the Chinese CDC, along with folks from WHO and also, um, uh, you know, some other international collaborators. And I think when you when you're looking at this kind of an outbreak, I think there's several patterns that we often see. And the two numbers that I pay the most attention to are the case fatality rate and what trend is happening there, and the R naught. So the R naught R with a subscripted zero. Uh, epidemiologists call it the R-naught. That is how many people on average an infected person passes the infection to. So, and that's in an, a, a population that's susceptible to the infection. And we're all susceptible to this one. There's no vaccine. When you have a vaccine, that changes the picture, obviously. And it's that R-naught that determines what proportion of a population has to be vaccinated to prevent outbreaks of a disease. So that's where we get the 95% have to be vaccinated to prevent an outbreak of measles because it's r naught is about 15. One fifteenth uh, is 6%, 100 minus 6%, that gets you that 94% number. Uh, so any case, watch for that r naught In the flu, it's I think typically between one and two. For measles, it's 16, which is crazy high. You have to basically, a kid walks through a room of unvaccinated folks and then they're going to get measles. And then, um, and for the, so the, this re report said that the initial uh, estimates were that it was about uh, 2.2, uh, could be a little higher. They thought it might be, um, uh, and I've seen also reports recently that have been consistent with that, maybe 2.5. So, that means that the virus is still spreading through the population. When that number, if the control, if the controls that can be put in place decrease that number to one or less, that means the outbreak is going to be controlled or contained. So keep an eye on what that R naught number is doing. And if, if later estimates see it going down, that means that their control efforts have been successful. Note to Japan leaving people on a cruise ship is not a good way to contain an outbreak. Oh, I think they've had 500 cases. I, I feel so terrible for the folks on that, on that cruise ship. That was absolutely the worst public health move of the decade to do that. So uh, the other number, so we want to know what that R-naught is. It looks based on this report, like it's going to be between two and three somewhere. So 
uh, higher than the flu, so maybe more contagious than the flu, although it's early days yet. The other is the case fatality rate. And that's where the denominator becomes really important. The, in an outbreak like H1N1, and here the sickest people are the ones that get tested first and come to our attention first. And there are all sorts of people out there, I'm sure, who are, have very mild or even asymptomatic coronavirus infections. And the reports are starting to come out about that. If you look at the 72,000 infected, confirmed infected in China, and nearly 2,000 deaths, case fatality rate is 2.6%, far higher than influenza and kind of scary. Uh, influenza is 0.1% or less. Uh, on the other hand, if you look at the cases outside of China, there have been 804 cases with only three deaths. So that's a case fatality rate of 0.3%. So that means maybe there's more widespread testing and surveillance in these uh, you know, groups outside of China. Maybe the healthcare facilities are better. You know, We don't know exactly uh, what's going on, but I suspect if I had to make a prediction, which is worth what you're paying for it, uh, I think that the case fatality rate will go down as the epidemic, as we do a better job of uh, surveilling folks in the community who are uh, asymptomatic and seeing how many of them have been exposed to it. The estimates are that up to 80% now have a mild infection, only about 5% have a critical or life-threatening infection, and this is in China. And of those 5%, about half end up dying. Uh, so that gets you to that 2.5% case fatality rate. So it's this is really a nice example of uh, international cooperation to some extent and um, getting this information out and sharing this information. Uh, you can go to the U.S. Uh, CDC website and they have uh, uh, cdc.gov slash coronavirus that will get you to their site. And they are posting regular updates and uh, for some reliable information. So um, anyway, that's just a quick summary. The typical, the other things that we learned from this are that the uh, time uh, from exposure to developing symptoms is probably somewhere in the three to five day range. And the average time from symptom onset to seeking care was five days. But again, that's all probably going to change over time. Henry, any any thoughts? Yeah. So first of all, uh, the, the data that, um, that Mark just presented on the case fatality rate, both in China and outside, were released by the World Health Organization today on our day of recording. So this is fresh as we're speaking. But as you pointed out, Mark, this is rapidly evolving. And if there is a positive or a bright spot to this, it is the rapidity in which people were able to identify the specific virus within a few days, as well as the zoonotic nature. It's probably bats and maybe pangolins are part of this. And so the wet markets in China are a real um, common source of the um, initial infection infection. And then there's the sad stories. They, they abound of all of the people who died. You know, the Chinese physician who tried to sound the alarm early on in the epidemic died. And then today, the World Health Organization reported that the Wuhan hospital director, a well-regarded neurologist, also died. Yeah. It, in the uh, reporting today, it looks like men had a somewhat higher case fatality rate than women, that, that people with underlying cardiovascular disease, diabetes also had higher rates. Um, older patients had higher rates, case fatality rates. It may, certainly the male versus female thing may have to do with, for example, if there's more smoking and more chronic lung disease in men due to smoking, they're going to be more at risk of complications. I and mean, that's a, just a guess, but uh, that, that might explain some of that 
uh, difference. Uh, and I don't know how widespread smoking is among women in China, um, but it is quite widespread among men in China. So that could be part of what's going on there. John, any, any thoughts about this? Keep in mind that there have been reported by the CDC over 12,000 deaths in the U.S. alone from influenza this year, and we do have a vaccine against influenza. Yeah, and uh, still not too late to get it. And also, uh, we are, you know, they are working on a vaccine. The estimates are one to two years, probably before a coronavirus vaccine is available. Uh, It is hopefully encouraging that we haven't seen widespread person-to-person transmission in the U.S. yet. And I think if we can make it a few more weeks without seeing that, then then hopefully uh, we should be okay. And, and um, as summer comes, hopefully the that uh, epidemic in China will, will cool off, but we'll see. Um, so Henry, you have a, a recommendation. We try to, we're, we're trying to make a recommendation to our listeners uh, of, of a non-medical kind and, and or pseudo-medical kind. So t- take it away, Henry. Yeah. So I, I just want to revisit uh, an all-time author whose most famous book kind of, kind of peripherally addresses the importance of public health and altruism, the key characteristics of primary care. And the, and the book also addresses uh, some of the sadness of unchecked contagion. I'm talking about Louisa May Alcott and her book, Little Women. It's been often used used to stimulate young readers, but it's really worth a read by mature ones too. It has great characters, powerful storylines, and the stories are so timeless. I'm aware of at least five films beginning way back in the silent era, and I understand there have been a bunch of miniseries based on it. So it really crosses multiple generations and still has meaning. So, and, if, and the fun part is that if you find yourself in New England, the home that uh, Louisa May Alcott grew up in is open to the public. It's only a couple of miles from Walden Pond and Lexington and Concord. So you can get really filled up on all kinds of literary history and the American Revolutionary War. And, you know, an additional medical aspect to her home is that it's only a few miles due north of Framingham, Massachusetts, home of the Framingham cohort studies. There you go. Great recommendation. Um, see the movie. Uh, I I was <laughs> I was uh, one of two men out of a, an audience of about fifty or sixty people at that movie, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I I, I just absolutely loved that that adaptation and great the, the way she the way she told the story and turned inverted parts of it and yep. played with the timeline was just absolutely brilliant and deserved the director award for Academy Award, but didn't get it anyway. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Next week or two weeks, we're back to our usual um, format. We'll also have an Atrium Beats from Dave Slauson and um, a quiz and kind of get back into our normal routine. So we hope you enjoyed today. Please tell your friends. Uh, rate us on iTunes. Five stars is great. Four stars, we'll take that too. And uh, we will talk to you soon with more primary care updates.